0: Good morning. So, Jesus rides toward Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. The crowds are waving their palm branches, and he stops at a village in Bethany, called Bethany, sorry, outside of Jerusalem. For the Passover, Jerusalem swells up with tourists and pilgrims, and you can't get a room there. So Jesus' disciples stay across the valley in Bethany. Now, up to this point in Lent, we have been studying Jesus' last words from the night before the crucifixion. But today, Palm Sunday, we're gonna go four days earlier than that. Jesus is gonna stay at the home of Mary, uh, Martha and Lazarus, brothers and sisters who own a home together, and if you uh, remember the story, uh, Jesus, Lazarus died like a couple of weeks before Palm Sunday, and Jesus showed up and raised him from the dead. So now Jesus is returning to the scene of the miracle, and that's going to create quite a buzz. He's staying at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, and so uh, they're going to have a big dinner party in Jesus' honor here at the time of the Passover. And then things get awkward. Sister Mary, this is not Jesus' mother, this is Lazarus' sister. She comes into the dinner party and she's carrying a jar of perfume. This jar of perfume is big and expensive. It's probably completely sealed, either to be something you use a little over years, but more likely something that you save for your own family burials because of their burial practices well she goes into the middle of this dinner party and breaks this bottle of perfume open she starts taking the perfume out and she's rubbing it on Jesus feet in the middle of dinner and then when you get the big clumpy pieces on there she wipes them off with her hair awkward (laughs) but it's about to get worse believe it or not The smell is now beginning to fill the house. There's no one at this dinner party who doesn't know what's going on. This perfume bottle in today's dollars would probably be worth $30,000. Everyone is silently astonished by what she's doing. And then uh, there's one person in the room boiling with anger over it. One of Jesus' disciples starts chewing Mary out right there in front of everybody. He says, what is this waste? That perfume is worth a year's wage. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then Jesus goes off on the disciple. He says, leave her alone. I'm gonna be dead in a week. She's preparing me for burial. Okay, I'm sure Martha is about ready to faint at this point. And then Jesus says, uh, chapter 12, verse eight, you'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The name of the disciple who went off on Mary, Judas Iscariot. Judas, who four four nights from this night is going to get upset at another dinner party and walk out and go tell the police where to find Jesus so he can be arrested and crucified. Man, this is an awkward dinner party. You know what makes me feel even more awkward about this story, though? is I can tell as I read the story that I've got it backwards in my mind. I know from the way these words are written, I am supposed to marvel at Mary and her devotion and worship of Jesus. And I know when Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, but me you will not always have, and that I'm supposed to learn something really wise from those words. But if I'm truthful as I imagine this scene in my mind, I just feel like Mary comes across as kind of a weirdo. If I'm really truthful, the only one who says anything that really makes sense to me at this dinner party is Judas. Judas makes the most sense to me. I know, he's supposed to be like the Darth Vader of the New Testament, but if I'm honest, his words in verse five, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. It makes sense to me, which makes me feel really awkward, especially given what comes out in verse six. Not that Judas cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So I find I've been caught. I'm siding with a crook who isn't even sincere in what he's saying. He just wants more money for the ministry of the poor, so he has more to skim off the top for himself. So here I am identifying with the person who intends the most evil for mankind. This story bothers me a lot, and it always has. I'll bet for some of you, this story bothers you too. If you're the type of person where when you see a church spend money on ceiling murals and pipe organs or video screens and youth rooms, that makes you itchy. I bet this story makes you itch in the same place. If if you're someone where spending money for anything besides the very most practical needs of ministry bothers you, I bet this story bothers you. If you're somebody who fantasizes sometimes, like what would it be like if we could just get rid of church buildings, get rid of church staff, if everyone could just meet in homes in little groups of five or six and sing a song and read a scripture and then take all that money that's being given and give it directly to the care of the sick and the homeless and the addicted. If you're someone who sometimes daydreams that way, I bet this story kind of shakes you awake again and uh, and you're waking up grumpy. Before studying this passage, I I think I could have been right there with you. However, after after grappling here with Jesus' words, I feel like Jesus is trying to let Judas, let me, uh, let all of us know that we have confused the kingdom of God and the king. We want a world without poverty and need. We want Jesus' kingdom on earth, but we're running right past the king Jesus to get it. So in this moment, here we have Sister Mary, and and she seems to remember that whatever this traveling band of disciples is and whatever they do for the poor, what they're really doing is proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come, and she's recognizing that Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Now, when Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you, but you'll not always have me with you, he's not saying that the poor are unimportant, but he is definitely saying that he is more important that's tough Jesus is the center of all ministry even ministry to the poor we're going to have to unpack that together that's tough so I'm going to try to say it as clearly and as quickly as I can Jesus did not come to end poverty Jesus did not come to end in morality Jesus did not come to bring world peace that he even said Jesus came to be king, to reestablish the kingship of God over the world. And in his kingdom, poverty does end. And in his kingdom, immorality ceases. And in his kingdom, there is world peace. But if we try to get those things without Jesus as king, we will fail. If we try to sell the perfume and give the money to the poor and fail to anoint Jesus' feet with the perfume of our worship, and wipe them off with the hair of our gratitude and our repentance, we will fail. I want to read you an article that was written in 2005. This article is written by an atheist. This is written by an outspoken atheist, Ron Hattersley. It was published in the very liberal Guardian newspaper, written for atheists. Hattersley walked the streets of New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and then he wrote this article about who he saw on the streets of New Orleans helping those who were suffering. Here's what he wrote. He said, almost all of them have religious origin and character. Notable by their absence are teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of people who not only scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity, but also regard it as a positive force for evil. Late at night, a man who tried to convince me that homosexuality is a mortal sin also offered friendship as well as help to the most degraded and denigrated human beings of our society. And he does what he believes to be his Christian duty without the slightest suggestion of disapproval. Yet for much of his time, he's meeting needs that result from conduct he regards as intrinsically wicked. Good works, John Wesley insisted, are no guarantee of a place in heaven, but they are most likely to be performed by people who believe that heaven exists. The correlation is so clear that it's impossible to doubt that faith and charity go hand in hand. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. The Bible is so full of contradictions, we can accept or reject its moral advice according to taste. Yet men and women who, like me, cannot accept the mysteries and the miracles, do not go out with the Salvation Army at night. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that, while it, do, while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make them morally superior to atheists like me. The truth may make us free, but it has not made us as admirable as the average captain in the Salvation Army. So you see, when we work against poverty, it's not because that was our primary goal. It's because Jesus has given us a picture of the kingdom of God. And when we have that picture in our mind and then we look at the world, we begin to see things that don't match. So we start pushing back against those things. We push against poverty because we know Jesus' kingdom can't include that. We push against poverty because we want to be practiced at doing the sorts of things and living the way Jesus is going to have us living for all eternity. We push against poverty because it makes it easier for us to share the good news credibly with the world. We can say, look and see what we're doing here. Well, this is the sort of thing our King Jesus will have us doing everywhere. This is what his kingdom is about, and even atheists can see that. Nicholas Kristof, who writes for the New York Times and is very outspoken against uh, religions, particularly Christianity, he wrote this article in 2010 for the New York Times. He said, Evangelical Christians have become the new internationalists, pushing successfully for new American programs against AIDS and malaria and doing superb work on issues from human trafficking in India to mass rape in Congo. One of the most inspiring figures I've met while covering Congo's brutal civil war is a determined Polish nun in the terrifying hinterland, feeding orphans, standing up to drunken soldiers, and comforting survivors, all in a war zone. I came back and decided, I want to grow up and become a Polish nun. I want to remind us this morning that a lot of organizations that started out serving the poor, also started out as Christian organizations. But they saw all the money swirling around out there in the secular world and a desire to gather donations from outside the church. Many of them gave up Jesus, but they kept trying to serve the poor. They slowly became less effective at that hard work and often over time became less interested in serving the poor, eventually changing their mission entirely. So we are here to celebrate our one-year anniversary of our fearless financial challenge. A year ago, uh, many of us uh, who were here at that time committed to raise $1.3 million above our normal church giving for causes that we feel the Lord had given to us. And we're going to do that over the next two years. One year is completed today. And we're here to celebrate the things that have happened, but I also want to take this opportunity to give a caution to us, the church. And my caution is this, to be careful. Be careful of liking the things that we do in Juarez, Mexico, and the good work that's done by the Prodeo Youth Center, and the good work that's done in Liberia and Africa. But being less interested in the good work that we also do, of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, of raising up um, uh, pastors, Chinese pastors, for the future Chinese church of liking and being less excited about um, the ministries of this place. A lot of what we raise pays for this facility and the ministry that happens here, the proclamation of Jesus week in and week out. I want to remind you that the YMCA, created in the uh, early 1800s, used to be the, uh, the Young Men's Christian Association. It was a place that offered lodging and recreation to homeless urban youth, boys and gave them a place to encounter Jesus Christ. However, over time, and well, today, it's just the why. No longer for young Christian men, in fact, I read on their website, the average customer for a why now is a suburban woman in her 50s. And I searched their website using their own search engine for the word Jesus. My search generated no results. So we have an organization uh, we're very proud to support here in our own community, Pro Deo, for youth who uh, are at risk in our own community. Pro Deo, Latin, for God. Will we preside over the days when it just gets turned into pro? Like Judas, will we rant about the poor and go turn Jesus over to the secular authorities to do with him whatever they please? As we're here to celebrate our fearless financial challenge, I'm uh, worried about some who have said, I just wish all the money we gave could just go to the fearless stuff. Who needs a church building? Who needs church staff? I always wonder what people are trying to tell me when they say right to me, like, who needs church staff? (laughs) Keep saying it, I'm a little thick. I think I'll finally get your message. (laughs) Who needs youth rooms and that sort of thing? Well, friends, Where did the donors for all those other things come from? Where did the message that Jesus taught that serving those who are poor and forgotten is an important thing to do, where were they taught that? All those volunteers who loaded all those supplies onto that container that went to Liberia during the Ebola crisis, where did they come from? How did they hear about it? And the next generation who must continue this quest against suffering and misery in the world... Where are they being trained while we sit here right now? I think we saw them waving palm branches as they moved through the room. They're being trained up in the church of Jesus Christ. So we come and we anoint his feet with the perfume of our songs and our worship and he teaches us from his word and he makes it clear to us that he is king and we are his people and we accept that, then we go out and we do the things he told us to do. Jesus is the center of all ministry, even ministry to the poor. Now, if we're able to end poverty without the kingdom of God, then why haven't we done it already? It has certainly had all the media exposure you could ever ask for. Some have tried to end poverty with extreme peace, Gandhi. Some have tried to end poverty with extreme violence, Mao Zedong. Some tried to move governments to do it, Lyndon Johnson. Some have tried to do it with just taking responsibility for themselves and making their own personal sacrifice, Bill and Melinda Gates. But still in the world, most of the day in, day out, actual relief of suffering all over the world is carried out in the name of the King, Jesus. World Vision, a Christian famine relief organization, feeds more people than the next five secular relief organizations all combined. And World Vision's primary fundraising method is to go to Christian concerts and ask Christian junior high and high school kids to throw some money in a bucket they pass around in. And they, they feed more people than the next five secular organizations all combined. In the same way, I could not have uh, personally provided what it took to build the youth center for Prodeo for those kids in our own community. Nor could I have talked enough of you into putting up the money that, that let that happen. Rather, it is Jesus who brought us together and we prayed and his spirit spoke to us. And last summer, it happened. Furthermore, I want to say, why are we so obsessed with ending poverty and calling that the kingdom of God? If we made every person in the world rich, there would still be immorality and misery and depression. Because, you know, rich people are not immune to sadness and depression and being lost. So the kingdom of God's got to be more than just that. And, And third of all, Practicality isn't everything. Now, I'm preaching to myself on that. It really actually caused me physical pain to say practicality isn't everything. Because I really love things to be practical and efficient. I don't like wasted time and wasted energy. But I've had to learn the hard way that practicality and efficiency can be an idol that you worship instead of God. You ever watch those whole makeover shows? Those, I'm, I'm talking about the bleeding heart. Where I'm always crying at the end. Where they are. Uh, The parents will have the two kids that have terminal cancer and they get their house totally redone by volunteer architects and construction workers and designers. Have you seen these? Have you ever noticed how much money they spend on the kids' bedrooms? Now that is not practical. It is not practical to build kids a spaceship room when they're gonna be dead in two years. You ought to just give the money to the parents for their medical bills that's practical or maybe the joy the joy of those two years is somehow worth it now Judas wouldn't think so but somehow I think Jesus sitting over there with perfume on his feet just might there's a man, a missionary actually, in Mexico. He went to a poor village. In the middle of this poor village, another church had built a really expensive building. It had gold inlay. It had sculptures. It had murals. And he, the missionary, hated the church that built that building. So it was very easy for him to say to one of the Mexican women, I think it's sad that you all live in poverty. And in the middle of your village, there is that expensive church building." But this little Mexican woman wagged her finger at him and she said, Oh, no, young man. We gave all we had to build that church. And now it's the one beautiful thing we have, and we have it all together. Those little Mexican women had broken their bottles of perfume and poured them out on the feet of Jesus in the middle of their village, and they did not regret it. Practicality isn't everything. Rob Bell is an author who uh, shares a story. This story comes from a young, uh, from a man, sorry, who had, uh, was in charge of a medical station after World War II that was uh, for people who were left behind in those concentration camps. Here's what the man left behind in those concentration camps had to say. He said, I can give no adequate description of the horror camp in which my men and myself were to spend the next month of our lives. Corpses lay everywhere, some in huge piles. Sometimes they lay singly or in pairs where they had fallen. It took a little time to get used to seeing men and women and children collapse as you walk by them. One knew that 500 a day were dying and 500 a day were going on dying for weeks before anything we could do would have the slightest effect. It was shortly after the British Red Cross arrived that a very large quantity of lipstick arrived. It was not at all what we wanted. We were screaming for hundreds and thousands of other things, and I don't know who asked for lipstick. I wish so much I could discover who did it. It was an act of genius, sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for these internees than the lipstick. Women lay in bed with no sheets, no nighty, but with scarlet red lips. You saw them wandering about with nothing but a blanket over their shoulders, but with scarlet red lips. I saw a woman dead on the post-mortem table, and clutched in her hand was a piece of lipstick. At last, someone had done something to make them individuals again. They were someone, no longer merely the number tattooed on their arm. At last, they could take an interest in their appearance that lipstick started to give them back their humanity because sometimes the difference between heaven and hell may be a bit of lipstick. Judas would never order lipstick and neither would I and that just goes to show what we know about anything. Practicality is not everything. Without Jesus at the center, showing us the way, we can do nothing. Nothing for the poor, nothing for ourselves, nothing at all. Jesus is the center of all ministry, even ministry to the poor. Now Jesus gives this line, The poor you'll always have with you, but me you will not always have. Often in the church, this has gotten interpreted this way well, you know, forget about the poor. You're always going to have those people. Turn all your resources into worship of Jesus. Uh, That is also a ludicrous interpretation of Jesus' words. You, You are not going to read the Gospels very far and get away with that one. What Jesus is saying is, if you remember me, you will also remember the poor. If you forget me, you will someday forget the poor. So remember Jesus, remember worship, and the poor will always be there with him. Wherever Jesus goes, there are the poor huddled around him. Now, throughout history, actually many times in my lifetime, the church and the world has has forgotten our ministry to the poor and tried to turn everything into the worship and the proclamation of Jesus. But every single time these scriptures and his Holy Spirit turn some in the church... To focus again on what Jesus calls us to do in regards to the poor. We can never get away. In fact, I didn't know this until I studied this passage for you. Uh, Jesus, when he says that, is actually quoting a passage from the Old Testament. When he says, you'll always have the poor with you. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 11. It says, there will always be some in the land who are poor. There will always be some in the land who are poor. But read the whole verse. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. Here's how it is. Devotion to Jesus leads to devotion to the poor. And your devotion to the poor demonstrates your devotion to Jesus. And it's a cycle that cannot be broken. And when you try, here's what happens. When you try to serve the poor without Jesus, eventually you just wander off from both. You forget even the poor. When you try to serve Jesus and ignore the poor, to keep that going, you kind of have to quit reading the Bible. And so you just kind of wander into worshiping this figure who's like Jesus, but not really him. It's a cycle that has to be kept together. So what about it? We're here today to celebrate the one-year mark of a lot of good Christian work. And I just want to say, let us celebrate everything God has done. Let us celebrate the things which have aided the poor and the forgotten and the at risk. Let us celebrate the build-out of the Prodeo Youth Center. Let's celebrate the container of supplies that went to Liberia during the Ebola crisis. Let us celebrate the beans and rice that go to Mexico. Let us also celebrate the things that have proclaimed our King Jesus who loves us, loves the poor, and has made a kingdom for both. So let us celebrate that this fear this financial challenge has also paid the mortgage on this building for a year. Every bit of worship and proclamation, every soul that has been touched by this place, it's been through that and because of that ministry. Let us also celebrate what went to provide the Chinese house church to train up the next generation of Christian Chinese pastors for China. Let's also celebrate an air conditioner on a kid's own room and a new youth room that got built out. It's wonderful. It values those kids. And that is where the next generation of the church is being trained while we speak. Let us even celebrate a mechanical hydraulic lift, which not only keeps our staff from dying while they change those light bulbs, but also, remember at Christmas, the beautiful uh, place we had to come and worship. Well, we couldn't have hung all that, those things up without a piece of equipment like that. So it contributes to the worship and the beauty of the worship of God. So I just say, let us celebrate everything God has done. Remember that Jesus is the center of all ministry, including all the ministry to the poor. So we have a video here that recaps the things which Fearless has done in the first year, two years yet to go. Um, I want us to be clear. These are not things we have done. These are the things that God drew our attention to and laid on our heart. His Spirit moved us to make these pledges, and His, He has given us the ability to give to these things. So everything we're about to see is a celebration of what God has done. And we're so grateful to have gotten to be used by Him to do them. So let's watch together.
1: Hi Lakeland, I'm Megan Hunter and this is Adam Lips, and we are your campaign directors for Fearless.
2: Last March, Lakeland, you pledged over 1.3 million dollars
1: to the Fearless Financial Campaign over the next three years. Can you believe one year has already gone by for Fearless? We have some updates that we're really excited to share with you. A lot has happened. Here are some of the highlights. And in Afro-Mexico, you've given over $3,600 to keep the rice and beans dispenser going this year, which means you're responsible for feeding 45 families a month, allowing these families to feed themselves and their children so that their children can stay in school and graduate with better opportunities for themselves, their families, and their community. The library has also purchased the property adjacent to it and is in the middle of plans for another building so that visitors can stay when they come and adults can have a quiet place to read.
2: When it comes to Dignity Liberia, man, it's been a crazy year. Just last February, leaders were visiting, finalizing their plans for the rest of the year, only to have those plans completely uprooted by the outbreak of Ebola. Unfortunately, Dignity Liberia was directly impacted with the death of several doctors and workers. Undeterred, they responded by starting the Touch Campaign, which sent money to Charles
1: Luke in order to help this crisis. Fearless has done a lot of work internationally, but much has been going on in your own backyard as well. Prodeo was given $20,000 via Fearless very early in the campaign in order to get into their new building. With new walls, new paint, and a style that reflects the people who are in the building every day, Prodeo finally has a place to call their own. And we're so excited to see the ministry that continues to come from there. Not only have you, through Fearless, been able to touch so many lives outside these
2: doors, there are a lot of great things going on here at Lakeland as well. With your Fearless giving over the past year, we have made 10 payments to debt services. This means that 10 different times, we have continued in the process of buying these facilities.
1: Your generosity also purchased a lift for $14,500. Now our workers can safely repair and maintain this building for all of the great ministry that happens here. You gave $56,000
2: to help us build brand new facilities upstairs for our youth. The renovations went great. The space looks beautiful, and our youth feel valued and excited to encounter God.
1: Through Fearless, we also purchased an air conditioning unit for $11,700 for the K-4 space, so all those Elses can stay cool.
2: Over the past year, you have
1: given $10,000 toward continued
2: renovations of the Eastland House, our neighbors in Kansas City. This project has been a combined effort of both your generous volunteer work and the work of some skilled local contractors.
1: With your continued diligent giving to Fearless, we should be able to complete the Eastland House, making it livable by the end of the summer.
2: So thank you, Lakeland. Thank you for everything you've already done and for everything that we can do together
0: let us stand for the benediction. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us celebrate together.